Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Welcome to Redeemer. Uh, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 29 through 34. You can follow along with me in the Bible that you brought, in the Pew Bible that's been provided for you, and it's also provided for you in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there as well. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. Uh, my name's Sean Slade. I'm the pastor here, and we are so glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be fighting for a booth for Mother's Day brunch uh, this morning, uh, or you could be, if you're a college student, you could be studying for your exams next week, or you could slowly begin to realize that you scheduled a town hall meeting for Mother's Day, and it's not going to go well for you with anybody. That's me, maybe not you. But anyway, I'm here, you're here, it's great to have you with us. And the reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time than worship Jesus and consider his claims upon your life and think about the beauty of his kingdom and the power of his resurrection. And so I do want to thank you uh, for joining us. It's good to have you. Uh, What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, and he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together to worship him so that we might learn to rest in that love that he has for us. And as we rest in that love, we become a people who delight to gather together in community. And we love to go to the sun sphere together. We love to eat barbecue together. We love, you know, to do things together. But we really love to read the Bible and pray together. So that we can remind one another of that great love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service. So that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in urban and university Knoxville. And hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. Where people are trying to learn how to love God, we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that during this uh, Easter season, we've returned to 1 Corinthians, and we've been looking specifically at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you might remember that during Lent, we talked about the cross, and we talked about the seven words from the cross, and we spent time reflecting upon the significance of the cross and what Jesus had done for us there. What I want to do during this season of Easter is I want us to slow down and I want us to reflect upon what Christ has done for us through his resurrection and the significance of the resurrection. So with that in mind, let's look together this morning, resurrection, living, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 through 34. Otherwise, uh, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? 
if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Or if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame, the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, we are uh, thankful for this, your word, that you are a God, uh, not dead, but alive. Uh, You are a God, uh, not silent or hidden, but one who delights Uh, to make yourself known. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have made yourself known in your word, by your spirit, and ultimately in the person and the work of Jesus. And it's our prayer now that over these next few moments, as we attend unto your word, that you, by your grace and your mercy, that you would attend unto us, that we might see lovely, beautiful things of you in this, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There seems to be a lot that's been written about the impact of COVID upon our children and our schools. And one of the things that people have been writing about over and over again and thinking about over and over again is this phenomena that they're calling opting out. Uh, Now that many of the restrictions have been lifted and we've tried to return to normal, whatever normal actually is, what people are finding is that depression in our children is rising and that our children are choosing to opt out and that our children really don't want anything to do with what we have called normal. Uh, The pressure of school, the pressure of getting perfect grades, the demand to build their resumes, uh, the demand to join clubs that they're not interested in being a part of just so that they can go to some fancy college that they're not sure they actually really want to attend or to get some job that they're not really sure they really will like anyway. And so what we're finding is that our children are not interested in the things that we're interested in for them. Uh, And they have decided to opt out. And they've decided to opt out because they're asking a really fundamental question. And they're asking this, what's the point? Uh, what's the point in any of it? And I think that for many people, the COVID has left us with this existential crisis, right? Not just what if I get sick and what if I die, but what is it all for? What does any of this really matter? And for young people, uh, this may have been the first time that these questions have been put right in front of their face in such a way that they can't ignore these questions, And so when life slowed down for them, many high school kids, they saw through the emptiness of the normal and they started asking, right, what's the point? Why bother? And and parents and guidance counselors are completely frustrated by this, right? Because our kids don't care about the old way of doing life. They don't care about the old way of doing and succeeding and building the future, And uh, the old way of building your future and securing your life uh, that fit well for many upper middle class children uh, just doesn't seem to matter in the way that it used to matter. And as parents and as guidance counselors, we don't like this uh, because we have spent most of our lives celebrating the frenetic activity and success of our children. 
Because really deep down what we've always hoped is that maybe they could do it better than we did. And the way they can do it better than we did if they just, is if they just did more and did it better than we did when we were their age. But again, many of the students aren't interested in this normal life, in this normal way that we want for them. And so they're asking these questions. Uh, does it matter? If it does matter, why? What about it actually matters? These are those existential questions. Now, these questions aren't unique to the COVID. I mean, the COVID just confronted the utopian promises of our secular age because what the COVID did was it really just revealed our mortality. And if we're honest, and if we just look throughout history, we see over and over again that history is constantly confronting our mortality. I mean, C.S. Lewis wrote about this in 1948 when the world was uh, completely afraid of the atomic bomb and this threat upon the world that civilization as we know it might just end uh, if somebody uh, goes a little crazy and drops a bomb. And he wrote this, uh, what were your views about the ultimate future of civilization before the atomic bomb? What did you think all of this effort of humanity was to come to in the end. The real answer is known to almost everyone who has even a smattering of science. The whole story is going to end in nothing. If nature is all that exists, that is, if there is no God and no life of some quite different sort somewhere outside of nature, then all of human civilization will eventually die with the death of the sun. And so humanity will turn out to have been an accidental flicker, infinitesimally small and short in relation to the oceans of dead time which proceed and follow it. And there will be no one even to remember it. That's encouraging. Uh, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis, I thought you were nice, uh, you know, uh, but if that's really the end of the story, uh, we've really got to ask the question, then what's the point in all of this? And not only that, our children are being told that all of their decisions about love and morality are just biological chemical reactions that are being distributed through their body, through their lizard brain, uh, which is a psychological way of talking about that evolutionary part of staying alive. Uh, and if life is just sort of this random set of atomic collisions and our existence and our behavior and our likes and our loves are merely determined by our genes, then what's the point? And if the love of your life is really just an evolutionary strategy, then what's the point of this thing you call love? What's the point in being married and staying together? Does any of it matter? And if it does, does it matter in any sort of meaningful, lasting way? Right, these are the questions uh, that fill up philosophy books. They're the questions that keep fours like me, uh, Enneagram four, uh, up at night, uh, and uh, these are the questions that pandemics and atomic bombs uh, force us to come to grips with. And Christianity's answer to this existential angst is the resurrection. Christianity's answer to this existential angst is the resurrection, the promise that tomorrow we rise. That though we die, we will rise from the dead and we will rise from the dead physically to dwell with God in the land of his promised rest forever. And that hope and that promise of resurrection are what undergird a purposeful Christian life. And that's what Paul is addressing in these verses. You see, some of the Corinthians had denied the resurrection of the body. 
not just of Jesus' body. They believed Jesus' resurrection of the body. They, they didn't believe right, in our resurrection of the body. And they, they thought that Christianity, it was good. It was a good teaching. It was a good way of thinking about the world. It was good philosophy. It was a good and wise way to live in this world. And being a Christian then would give you some experiences in this life. It taught you wise ways to live and have, how to have friends and things like that. And Paul says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But he goes on in verse 33 and he says, do not be deceived. In other words, what he's saying is don't believe the lie. Don't believe the secular lie that this world and this life are all that there is. Instead, his argument goes like this, uh, eat and drink, uh, for tomorrow we rise. Not we die, but tomorrow we rise. And these are the two ideas that I want us to think about and reflect upon for the next few minutes. Uh, First, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And then second, uh, eat and drink, for tomorrow we rise. So first we'll begin with uh, tomorrow we die, then we'll move on uh, to tomorrow we rise. So point one, tomorrow we die, point two, tomorrow we rise. We begin with point one, then we'll go on to point two, but I think it's appropriate to start with point one, tomorrow we die. Tomorrow we die, that, that is the way the Corinthians thought about their existence. And it is the way many of us in our present age think as well, tomorrow we die. The death is really just the end. And this is what all the cool kids in 2013 were saying, right? YOLO, right? You only live once. And and it seems to me that we can have two equal and opposite reactions to YOLO, and then we can be anywhere on the spectrum with it. And one is to live this frenzied, frenetic life. And the other is to live a fearful life. You might remember, uh, I don't know if they're a great band, but you might remember they're a fake band called Lonely Island. And they sang a song called YOLO, and it begins like this. That wasn't a clearing of my voice to sing it, right? Uh, But YOLO, you only live once, the battle cry of a generation. This life is a precious gift, so don't get too crazy. It's not worth the risk. And then Adam Levine comes in. You know that we're still young, so don't be dumb. Don't trust anyone uh, because you only live once. That's the motto. So take a chill pill, ease off the throttle, never go to loud clubs because it's bad for your ears. Your friends will be sorry when they can't hear, right? And then then this song kind of keeps going and and it ends and they say, YOLO, say no, no, isolate yourself and just roll solo, be careful low. You ought to look out, stands for YOLO. You know that we're still young, burn the prints off your thumbs, then pull out your teeth so you can't bite your tongue. Only on this earth for a short time, time. So don't go outside because you don't want to die, die. Just take our advice and hide and scream YOLO to the sky. Uh, you ought to look out. Right? And it's this, uh, it's this really kind of uh, funny uh, song mocking the YOLO craze. Uh, but I do think uh, that the fear of death, and I do think that the reality of death, tends to shut many of us down. It makes us afraid to take any risk. It makes us afraid to give. It makes us afraid to love because we're so afraid that death is just going to take it all away from us anyway. 
And so why work? Why take the risk? Why love? Why care about the impact of your ideas or the impact of your job if death just rules over all of it anyway? And why love someone if they're just going to die? And so why not spend yourself and spend your time protecting yourself and your assets and your comfort? Why not, uh, as the video, the Lonely Island video shows you, lock yourself in a room uh, or maybe move out to the woods to avoid the pain and the death and the suffering that inevitably will come to all of us. You see, for many of us, uh, fear just really shuts us down and then it closes us off to a life of love. In the four loves, uh, C.S. Lewis, one one of his famous works, He wrote what has become one of his most famous quotes, and he said this, There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. And so here's his point. What he's saying is that fear tends to inhibit our willingness to love. It tends to inhibit our ability to love. But not only that, uh, you know, when we think about death and pending death, the reality of death, some of us it shuts down. But not all of us. Uh, Others of us become really frenzied and we recognize that we only have this limited time on earth. And so what do we do? We turn up Dave Matthews to 11 and we sing, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Now Dave's probably quoting Ecclesiastes, uh, but Paul is quoting the same idea here in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verse 32. And when Paul's quoting 1 Corinthians, uh, when Paul's quoting uh, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, he's actually thinking about Isaiah 22. In Isaiah 22, what was happening was that the Assyrians had come and they had encircled the city of Jerusalem and judgment was upon uh, the people of God because they wouldn't listen to him. They wouldn't listen to his voice, they wouldn't obey him, and they were blind to the spiritual realities of God's presence. And so death was upon them and judgment was awaiting them. And so what did the people do? Uh, The people in Isaiah 22, they go up on their roofs and they party like Kappa Sigs. Uh, And they said, let us eat and drink uh, for tomorrow we die. And and here's Paul's point. If there is no resurrection, right, if there is no judgment, if this life is really all there is, then why not do whatever you want? Why not satisfy every desire and every passion that you have? And this is why Paul then goes on to say, verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor. What he's saying is come to grips with reality, sober up. There is a resurrection and there is a judgment, And so, verse 33, do not be deceived, right? That's his point, right? Death is not the end, because tomorrow we rise, right? Death is not the end, because tomorrow we rise. And as he says this to the Corinthians, he's saying, y'all know this to be true. 
You know it to be true by the way you live and by the way you act and by the way you, you love. Look at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, no one really knows what this baptism for the dead or of the dead is all about. It's a really difficult verse. But Paul seems to be saying that whatever the ritual was, it proved that the people actually believed that there is a resurrection of the dead. Whether it was in the way they treated a body that had died before its burial, or whether it was that they themselves were vicariously baptized for those who had already died uh, in the hopes that their baptism would mean that death wouldn't be the end for their loved ones. And so what Paul's doing is he's appealing to their deep, deep longing for resurrection, and I think all of us have that, resu- uh, that longing as well, and that longing is deep within each and every one of us. And it's something that impacts the way we do our funerals. It impacts the way we treat bodies. It it impacts uh, the way we work and care for this world. It impacts the way we talk about things like like love. I mean, that's that's the whole point of Randy Travis's favorite famous song, right? I'm going to love you forever, forever and ever. Amen. It's why our fairy tales all end with, and they lived happily ever after. And I think that there really is this secret inside each and every one of us that we really all are longing for something more, something deeper, something fuller, something more beautiful, something truer, something more solid, something more permanent. Uh, We all long for immortality. And yet we spend most of our lives pushing it aside, pushing that longing for immortality aside because... Uh, we're afraid that it might not be true. Uh, We push it aside because we're afraid that if we start talking about it, we might sound foolish to our neighbors. We're we're afraid that we might be seen as hopeless romantics or or people might say, you should be realist. And of course we want to be realist. But deep inside of all of us, there is this longing that nothing has ever really satisfied A longing that won't go away and a longing, if we're honest, seems more true and more real than anything we've ever experienced. We catch hints of it, right? We catch hints of it in uh, love and in beauty and in music or in sunsets. But again, as C.S. Lewis said, they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, an echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. And what, and what Paul is saying is like these things are the realities of God that have been written on our hearts. It is this longing for resurrection life with God. And so what I want to invite you to today is not to push that longing aside. I want you to embrace that longing. I want you to allow that longing to, to let it pull you towards God himself. Don't push it aside. Stop running from it and give yourself to him. And begin now investing in the resurrection life which is to come. To give your life to that which will last. To allow the future to be brought into the present and live for it as it shapes you today. We do this uh, uh, in other things. I mean, uh, we're afraid to do it spiritually. uh, But we do this all the time uh, in other parts of our life. I mean... Think about, think about this. Um, down in the old city, there is a plot of, of land that has recently been cleared. 
Uh, it's down there by, underneath the bridge, just off to the side of the bridge. There's a fence around it right now, and something's going on down there. And there are rumors about what's going on. Uh, there are lots of rumors about it. Uh, there have been people talking about maybe the Smokies are coming back uh, to the city. And uh, there are rumors. We've seen plans. Somebody made plans and drew them, and they put them on the television, and they put them on the Internet. And then people have had press conferences saying that there's going to be a stadium downtown. If you go downtown, there's no stadium. It's just a cleared-off piece of dirt and a fence around it. Something might be happening. We don't know. People are saying there's something that's going to happen. And what's fascinating is that because of this promise of a stadium and because of the promise of the Smokies, what are people doing? They're investing downtown. They are putting their money into downtown. Condos are going up, cool, hip condos, cool, hip restaurants and bars are going in down there. Why? Because they're investing in the future. They know what's coming and they don't want to be left behind. It's the same with our with us spiritually. We invest in what we believe is coming. We invest in what God has promised. And that's Paul's point. The resurrection is going to happen. So verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning because though you die tomorrow you will rise. And when we rise we will enter into the abundant life that God has always promised but we have never experienced. At the resurrection all of our sorrows are going to be healed. At the resurrection the wholeness and the holiness of God will restore all things. At the resurrection sickness, sorrow, pain and death will be reversed and death will die and life will triumph. And if life and love are going to triumph, if beauty and truth and if justice and mercy will fill the earth, and if God is going to make his dwelling with us once again, and if God will be all and in all, why would you not give yourself to him now? Like, why would you not give yourself to those things today? As the modern trope goes, don't be on the wrong side of history. That's what Paul is saying. This will happen. God has promised it. He's guaranteed it through his resurrection. So give yourself to him. And this is why Paul says in verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I die every day. What do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus if the dead are not raised? And what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, look, if death is the only thing that awaits me, right? If there is nothing else than this world, then why would I go about preaching the gospel? Why would I risk my life to the animals for preaching the gospel? Why would, why would I give myself when everyone hates me? Why would I abstain from the sins of this world and give myself to God if there is no resurrection? And Paul says the answer is this. There is a resurrection. And therefore, every day I die in order that I might truly live. Every day I put on Jesus. Every day I take up that pattern of dying and living. Taking up the cross and dying so that I might truly live. And then he's calling us to do the very same thing. He's saying it's not just me, but you too. Like, don't settle for the things of the world, but press on through them to know the Lord. Press on to receive this resurrection that God has promised. And this ought to impact everything that we do. I mean, think about it. If we only live once, then we must do everything we can to get as much as possible out of this world. But if we will eventually rise, 
to live with God forever. And if God will truly remake and restore the earth to be everything that it was intended to be, we will have eternity to travel the world. And we'll be able to visit Paris and Berlin and the Cinque Terre the way it was always intended to be. Not just the way it is today. And if our bodies really are resurrected, and if they really will enter into either eternal delight or into eternal despair, then what we believe right now and what we do right now, it actually matters. Because when Jesus steps back into this world, all that opposes him is going to be swept away. And it will be too late. And so look to him today. Give yourself to him today. And when you don't have the life that you want, or the life you think you deserve, or the life that you desire, when you give up things because you love Jesus and you want to love him more, I want to encourage you with this uh, phrase from a hymn. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. The way Paul talks about it uh, in Romans is that the sufferings of this world are nothing compared to the glory which is to come. So when the disappointments of your life, when the disappointments of being single, uh, when the disappointments of your marriage, when the temptation to lie, to cheat, to steal become too much, when the foolishness of the cross seems unbearable, when you're uncomfortable in and with your body or your sex or your gender, when you wish you had more stuff and better stuff, when the world doesn't work the way you wish it did or wanted it to, the answer isn't go do what you want and get a better life. The answer of Christianity is begin now investing in the future and trusting in God who will make all things right. This God who promises us that if you give up anything for me, I will give it back to you in spades. The God who makes this promise, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and in the age to come eternal life. God has promised that if you give up anything for him, he gives you everything. Here's Paul's point. Death does not define the Christian's decision. Resurrection defines our decisions. And therefore, this life that we live, it actually matters. Because this life moves on into the age to come. And so he's saying invest now, invest your time, invest your talents, invest your energies and your resources into that which will last. Give yourself to this age which is coming. Give yourself to things like justice and mercy. Give yourself to truth and to beauty. Give yourself to economic or political reform. Give yourself to love and good deeds. Give yourself, as the great theologian Alexander Schmemann used to say, give yourself for the life of the world. Because it is the world that God is going to redeem. It is the world that he will restore and renew. It is the world that he is reconciling to himself. That is the way of Jesus. And I want you to think about this. What is it that motivated Jesus to give himself for us? Why is it that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, would leave the glories and the comforts of heaven 
to come and dwell on this earth and dwell among humanity? Why is it that he would suffer and die on our behalf? There's this really uh, interesting thing. We, we, the, in John chapter 12, they're beginning the Last Supper, and Jesus has just told them that he has come to save the world. And, and then they have the Last Supper, and at the Last Supper, uh, you might remember that he washes the feet of his disciples. Why would he wash the feet of his, of his disciples? And then after washing their feet, he goes to a cross and he dies for their sins and for our sins. Why would he do this? This is beautiful. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, and listen to this, was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Waste, And then he began uh, to wash his disciples' feet. What did he know? He knew that he was from God. He knew that God had given everything to him. And he knew that he was returning to God. And those are the promises that God has made to us. What is it that will enable us to serve our neighbor? What is it that is going to help us give up the pursuit of worldly accomplishments so that you can care for the needs of your children? What is it that's going to help you and enable you to leave your house and your home to serve Jesus in another place? What's going to help you love your difficult spouse? Uh, what will help you and motivate you to continue to love when others hate you? Uh, what is going to help you love your neighbor when they don't care? It's the same thing that enabled Jesus. That just like Jesus, those who have faith in Christ, we too belong to God. And God has promised that everything he gives to Jesus, our elder brother will distribute and give to us. And just like our elder brother who died and rose, uh, we too, we will rise to dwell in the house of God forever. And he will shower us with all of his blessings. Right, and, and that's the point of this table we come to this table and we eat and drink knowing that tomorrow we rise. That we have a life on this earth that might be 10 years, it might be 50 years, it might be 80 years. But however long we're given, uh, we, most of us, unless Jesus comes back, we too will die. And God's promise is that though you die, you will rise. And when we rise and when we enter into the presence of our Father, we will begin to know what we only believe by faith. That the sufferings of this world are nothing compared to the glories which are to come. This is God's promise to us. And at the table, he gives us uh, bread and he gives us wine. He says, eat and drink. Because my promise to you is tomorrow you rise. And so we come to this table and we eat and drink for tomorrow we rise. (laughs) 